Welcome to the Greener Way podcast, a show about people, planet, and purpose, and how investors and corporate leaders push forward in a complex world. When we talk about taking the nuclear option, it's rarely a positive sign. But is nuclear power a solution to the reliable, emissions-free power generation that our global economy requires to transition to a net-zero world? Here to talk about a new push for nuclear power generation and how it might impact on investors and the ESG considerations of uranium mining is Philip Hudak, co-portfolio manager, Australian small companies at Maple Brown Abbott. Philip, you recently wrote a think piece identifying the next nuclear renaissance. Can you explain your thinking behind this? Uh, definitely. So I believe the, the tide has turned in, in uranium and we're entering the, the next nuclear renaissance if you look at the industry fundamentals, they're improving at a rapid pace you know, with increased, increasing policy support from governments, a return of the contracting cycle by Western utilities, and a supply side not yet incentivized to significantly increase production. And I think when you put all of that together, um, you know, it marries up with a positive medium-term outlook. In addition to that there, the, the global focus on green energy initi- initiatives I believe that nuclear power has a significant role to play in the future energy mix Mm. as it delivers minimal carbon emissions um, in addition to a a reliable source of baseload power to complement renewable energy sources, including solar and wind. Excellent. And so, Philip, just to be clear, um, when you talk about medium term, how many years does that mean for you? Yeah, look, uh, I think um, if you look at the timeframes in relation to getting new nuclear reactors on board, the timeframes are extended. So we are Mm. talking 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Mm. Um, But particularly when you start to look at the net zero uh, targets being put in place up until 2050, Mm -hmm. I believe that it's part of the solution coming through there. Yeah, interesting. Look, we'll talk a little bit more about the time frame on that, particularly as we're in sort of the, the critical decade for action on climate. And it's an, it's interesting to compare life cycles. But you wrote this piece about the next nuclear renaissance um, at a time where political parties and government regulators around the world um, are identifying nuclear energy as a possible solution. Um, here in Australia, for example, Coalition uh, Shadow Minister in Climate Change is talking about um, using nuclear energy to meet Australia's net zero commitments. How does growing interest in solutions like small modular reactors play into the investment thesis? And and does this give enough policy support for investors to start making some forward decisions? Yeah, no, that's actually a really interesting question. And, and I think if you actually look at you know, at a very high level, and even from a global perspective, if you look at the energy, um, the International Energy Agency forecasts for the global path to, to net zero emissions by 2050, they're talking about nuclear effectively doubling, you know, between that 2020 to 2050. And it's interesting that, you know, half of the emissions reductions which they're talking about are coming from technologies that are yet to be commercially viable. Mm-hmm. I mean, nuclear is included in that mix and part of that solution is small modular reactors or SMRs as they're commonly referred to. Mm. I, I suppose, you know, from a, a very high level is the major difficulty facing the nuclear investments at this present time, particularly in advanced uh, economy is the cost um, involved for particularly some of these large traditional uh, reactors coming through mm. there. And that's the reason why we haven't seen major investment in nuclear power in advanced economies, you know, over the past two decades. But And then also flipping, 
you know, looking at some some industry analysis, which shows that um, yeah, the average cost of electricity generation for a plant over its operating life is less attractive for you know traditional um, nuclear reactor builds versus say the options of wind and solar. But mm-hmm. you know, I firmly believe that new technologies like um, SMRs are expected to to bridge this gap um, coming through there. Mm. It'll be interesting, though. I mean, there's cost as in the outright sort of construction cost and permitting cost, and then there's costs like social license to operate. Uh, you know, SMRs look like a really good option until somebody wants to put one in your backyard, I guess. <laughs> yeah, de- I know, definitely um, coming through from from, from, from there. But I, mm. I, I suppose what you are seeing is uh, political, sorry, you know, um, you know, sort of support for, for nuclear is actually evolving. Um, mm. You know, particularly if you look in Europe, you know, they've had a range of elevated energy costs, uh, blackouts mm-hmm. coming through there. And you can see sentiment in Europe, in the US, and even here in Australia mm-hmm. uh, has started to improve, um, you know, on the, uh, as uh, for nuclear being as, as part of the solution. So with this as background, Philip, um, how can Australian investors take advantage of this of of this groundswell, shall we say? Um, are there opportunities to invest in the next nuclear renaissance, um, yeah. specifically from a small cap perspective? Yeah, no, definitely. So, um, you know, in, in Australia, the, you know, there are limited opportunities to invest invest across the the nuclear value chain. You mm. know, many of the current large producers like Gazataprom and um, Cameco are listed in offshore markets. You know, also on top of that, there some of the innovative uh, companies that are looking at you know the next SMRs uh, coming through are also listed offshore. Mm-hmm. The way Australian investors can take advantage of the nuclear thematic is firstly through you know up and coming uranium producers that have previously had mothball plants, as well as developers and exploration companies um, there. You know, in the short term, you know, we see significant upside for those companies that are restarting projects there. And and some mm-hmm. great examples include Boss Energy, which is expected to restart its uranium uh, mining operation uh, mm. in South Australia, which is, you know, perceived to be a, you know, geopolitically friendly jurisdiction uh, in the December quarter of, of this year. And the company is well-funded with, um, you know, a strategic inventory on its balance sheet coming through there. Also, the other option is Paladin Energy, which is based in Namibia and is expected Mm -hmm. to start uh, production in the first quarter of calendar year 24. Mm. Um, The other way to play the the sector is via developers and exploration companies, although although these are typically more uh, risky and require sustainably higher uranium prices uh, to make their projects uh, economical, although offer significant operating leverage if the uranium price uh, continues to trend upwards. Mm, okay. So uh, we've had a fairly straightforward conversation about the opportunity set so far. Um, let's bring the sustainability question in and the ESG question in, Philip. Um, can you first of all walk me through the way in which Maple Brown Abbott would consider ESG risks and opportunities and then delve into those specific opportunities in the Australian market from, from your perspective? Yeah, no problem at all. So so here at um, the uh, Maple Brown Abbott Australian small cap strategy, you know, we're bottom up investors looking to exploit idiosyncratic exposures, which we think is the most reliable source of, you know, return generation for, for our investors. However, we need to be cognizant of the industry dynamics and the 
ESG um, considerations. And, and we believe the setup for nuclear is one of the most attractive we've seen for, for any commodity coming through from there. Mm. You know, from, from an ESG perspective, you know, the primary trends uh, in motivations for nuclear energy are related to climate change and energy security that we're seeing around the globe. There is a strong political will for this transition to occur at an accelerated timeframe. Mm-hmm. However, what we have seen, you know, over the short term is some of the short uh, comings from renewables, notably wind and uh, wind and solar as a reliable source of energy uh, with any intermittency uh, to be filled potentially by nuclear as a reliable source of carbon-free baseload uh, power going forward. Mm-hmm. You know, from a fundamental perspective, you know, we see the supply-demand um, characteristics being highly attractive, but we are cognizant from an ESG perspective of some of the key risks in this sector. First of all is safety. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's highly publicised uh, nuclear accidents such as Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, Fukushima. Mm-hmm. However, you know, the narrative that uh, nuclear is unsafe, you know, may not meet uh, the, the reality um, that has actually came through. The other key ESG consideration is waste management. You know, the, the mm-hmm. safe disposal of nuclear waste remains critical to the public acceptance of, of nuclear. And if you look at, you know, where most of the disposal or half the disposal actually is, it's currently at existing nuclear power plants. Um, with a need of, you know, countries to develop more long-term solutions for recycling and or, you know, geological disposal um, of mm-hmm. nuclear waste. And then finally is the, the regulatory environment. You know, the last 20 years have been highly unfavourable uh, from a political point of view um, mm-hmm. in relation to the cost of new developments, the regulatory requirements, particularly in developed economies, which has seen the costs uh, of producing uh, new nuclear uh, plants being a lot mm-hmm. higher than in developing countries. That's a really good broad overview of the sector, Philip, but specifically speaking to those Australian uranium miners that you were talking about before, potentially, um, how do you do that granular analysis to identify, you know, there's other risks that there's social license to operate, community interest in increasing nuclear mining uh, for the for the people on the ground in those communities, for example, how do you how do you build that into your analysis? Yeah, so look if if you look at um, the the components that that we do look at as part of our investment strategy, is we look at it from an environmental, um, social, and governance um, component there, mm-hmm. and particularly on that social side, particularly those uh, you know sort of uh, operations which are outside of Australia, like Namibia, um, mm-hmm. we do actually take into um, you know consideration the impact that they're actually having on local communities there. Mm. And what we actually find is actually it can have negative connotations, but also positive implications as well, given that um, they are significant employees, uh, mm. you know, oh, sorry, employers of, um, mm. of, you know, of the region kind of coming through there. But we also take that into consideration. And then social license to operate in terms of permitting and regulations for expanding. Um, are there are there do you see headwinds and challenges in individual jurisdictions around sort of either bringing operations back online or expanding existing operations? Yeah, look, I mean, each of the jurisdictions have their different nuances there, of but course. I think, uh, but I, what we've actually seen is a strong political will uh, mm. for. Uh, an increase or, um, uh, you know, or, or less restrictions in relation to um, uranium or nuclear production there. And so what we actually expect is the, the potential of some of these regulatory overhangs, particularly in some of the uh, developed economies, 
uh, to be loosened from, from what they have been over the last 10 or 20 years. Excellent. Okay. Well, Philip, um, as as we come as we come toward the end of our time together, has this investment thesis that the broad analysis from the very top level at the global level down to the opportunities on the ground in Australia, has that led you at Maple Brown Abbott to make any decisions around um, allocations within your portfolio? Yeah. Look, we we have been uh, believers in the uh, nuclear. Uh, part of the the energy solution for approximately tw- twelve to twenty four months now, mm-hmm. um, and it's been a has had a reasonable representation within the uh, Australian small cap strategy here at Maple mm-hmm. Brown Abbott. You know we do favour those companies which are uh, nearing the ramp up of production, mm-hmm. and have had a preference for Boss Energy, just given the fact that. Uh, it is based in Australia, in South Australia, which we perceive to be a geopolitically uh, friendly jurisdiction um, there, but also expanding out to Namibia as well through Paladin Energy, uh, you know, where we see um, significant upside in the ramp up profile of their operations coming through there. Well, excellent. Well, Philip Hudak, co-portfolio manager of the Australian Small Companies Fund at Maple Brown Abbott, thanks for your time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Greener Way podcast. If you liked today's show, remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform and make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss an episode. Any feedback? Contact us on podcast at fssustainability.com.au. I'm Rachel Allenbackis. The Greener Way podcast is a product of FS Sustainability, a show about people, the planet, and investing in our collective future. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. The Greener Way podcast gives listeners access to information and educational content provided by discussing numerous financial sustainable options and our featured guests. It is not intended as a substitute for professional, legal, or tax advice. The hosts of The Greener Way are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. FS Sustainability operates under an Australian Financial Service License and the exemption made available under the Corporations Act 2001 in respect to any information or advice given. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the FS Sustainability website, fssustainability.com.au.